And welcome to the October 23rd, 2018 edition of Liberation Station Radio Show with your host, Chris Steiner. That's me. Tonight, we have a night full of news, and we don't have any guests scheduled. So if you'd like to be the guest, the call-in numbers are 727-441-3000. That's 727-441-3000. And 866-826-1340. That's 866-TAN-1340. And the website is theliberationstation.com. That's T-H-E, liberationstation.com, where you'll find the archives for this and all the past shows. And we're streaming on live, online live as well through the website. If you want to click on the listen slash archives tab, that's on the left side of the website at theliberationstation.com, the listen slash archives tab where you can join in the chat room and I can pick up your comments here online. And uh, if you don't feel like calling in and we can uh, be anonymous, you don't even need to sign up for an account to join in the chat room. Thanks for joining us tonight. The multinational corporation controlled news they lose proves it's what you can truly use. And we do have a lot of news to cover. The idea of this show is to promote health economically, ecologically, and for you personally to help improve the first two. Health economically includes things like equitable commerce media, getting outside of the rigged economy and starting our own or belonging to other equitable commerce media like community currencies, which are my favorite. We've talked about those in the past. And time banks, barter networks, cooperatives, and even a little bit of swap shopping and community gardening as supplements. So with these parallel systems, we make the outdated, antiquated, unsustainable federal currency and credit system obsolete. We expose it for being obsolete. Once you participate in these systems, you find that you can retain more of your time, your valuable creativity. And we've talked about time banks in the past as well. We'll talk about community currencies, time banks, cooperatives, swap shops, community gardens, more in the future as well. And uh, others that you can join are uh, St. Pete Time Bank and Tampa Bay Time Bank. So if the show uh, has helped you or others, then, you know, in any of these areas, economically, ecologically, and personally healing, then please donate at the homepage. Thanks to those who have donated, and uh, you help keep the show going as commercial-free and free of commercial bias by your donating on the webpage at theliberationstation.com on the homepage. If you can't donate financially, then please consider donating what you found useful, whether it be news or information or your own unique experiences and views. Well, to start out tonight, we have a clip that uh, I would like to play. If it's not ready, control room, uh, let me know. But uh, if you have that clip ready to go, I'll introduce it after we play it. Goes so if you can play it, go right ahead. Otherwise, I'll attempt to spend a little time.
Well, I guess we don't have that clip ready to go, but it has to do with cancer being caused by the red tide. And uh, we'll get into some articles on that. Now, it's from reporter Chris Grisby, who was fired from WINK, Wink News, out of Fort Myers, Florida. <clears throat> and he was fired right after this news report. So we're building the suspense here until we get to play that clip. And you can understand exactly why they got rid of him. Because... <clears throat> uh, all right, uh, because, uh, yeah, you'll find how impactful it is. So without further ado, go right ahead, play that clip. Cyanobacteria is still present, even though we don't see that guacamole-like green gunk that we saw earlier this year. There's still signs saying stay out of the water. And now some doctors are warning that there's something in the air that we can't see or smell, but could cause major health problems. Have you ever heard of microcystins or cyanobacteria before? No, no, never heard it before. It's a name we don't often hear, but could be causing us major health problems. On the East Coast, FAU researchers found microcystins in 100% of the people they tested, ringing alarm to doctors here on the West Coast. It does cause end-stage liver disease, liver cancer, and also they show animal studies that have been shown that it does end up causing colorectal cancer, testicular cancer, cancer and intestinal cancer so it is a very very huge concern for all of us. Dr. Parisa Mataev says symptoms we're facing now like coughing, shortness of breath and allergies and sinus flare-ups could be our body's way of fighting these toxins. This is going to have a long-term health effect eventually in five to ten years God forbid people are going to die but we're not keeping accurate measures and accurate information about people. And without proper air testing keeping your eyes peeled for a toxin we can't see or smell but is in the air will be difficult for people like Jorge Santana. The people in charge, they need to come here and let us know what can we do to prevent things. But if nothing has been said, then what are we? What are we to, to the upper rank? And Dr. Tave says, recommends you stay one mile away from the water. And Florida Poison Control says they state right so far they received more than 250 calls from blue-green algae-related symptoms to the red tide symptoms statewide. Well, there you heard it from Chris Grisby, formerly of WINK News. And he posts on Facebook, October 8th, 2018, quote, hello, everyone. I just wanted to reach out and tell you all thank you for your the support and strength you all have given me over the past 24 hours. Yesterday, I was let go from my reporting job at WINK. Since then, I have been overcome with emotions that I've never felt before. But I know I'm digging for the truth and what's right without you all i truly wouldn't have made it this far and i probably would be returning back home to texas right now i know that god has bigger plans in store for me though i know i am fighting a the good fight i still have a big story to dig into capitalize big and together we will get through this no matter what platform i'm on thank you for the encouragement thank you for the love 
We're in this together, so stay tuned and keep fighting for the truth, end quote. That's Chris Grisby, and somebody did a video interview with him, um, which uh, is too long to play because um, it's not really all that relevant. He's just, uh, or he doesn't have anything to say. Of course, he's trying to uh, not ruin his chances for maybe for future employment, so he's not uh, explaining anything else beyond what we already know. And he's not also replying on the, that Facebook post, even though he's gotten so much awesome support from folks. And this kind of story needs to get out there more because the health effects are detrimental, as he reported, and they're being suppressed. Here's an article from the investigative reporter, October 9th, 2018, by Mike Holfeld. Researchers agree chemicals may cause blue-green algae, red tide. Orlando, Florida, an environmentalist and photographer for National Geographic has gathered visual evidence that he believes proves herbicide spraying in Florida waterways has created the red tide and the blue-green algae bloom that is choking our lakes. Quote, oh, it's definitely happening, end quote, Jim Abernathy told News 6 last night. Quote, it's happening to the tune of 714,000 gallons a year, end quote. Abernathy said state-approved spraying of the herbicide glyphosate used in commercial brands such as Roundup could be an unchecked cause of the state's water problems. According to the University of Florida Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants, the chemical is one of 17, quote, active ingredients, end quote, in herbicides currently approved for use in Florida waters. The chemical is used, quote, only by careful application because in general, glyphosate damages most plants it contacts, according to the center's website. Abernathy said he is convinced the intended effect has created an unintended side effect. E. Allen Stewart, an environmental engineer, said Abernathy may be right. Stewart said the 33,000-acre Lake Apopka is real-life proof, quote, to what can happen with loss of biodiversity, end quote. Quote, if there are no aquatic plants there to pick up the nutrients, the blue-green algae will step in, end quote, Stewart said. Quote, a lot of these things are unpredictable, chaotic, end quote. The potential link to herbicide spraying is getting a closer look in the scientific community. Dr. James Douglas, a researcher at Florida Gulf Coast University, is planning to conduct controlled experiments to determine if there is a connection between herbicide spraying and the blue-green algae. Quote, the data to evaluate the hypothesis is... Excuse me there. Yeah, I hit the wrong... Hit the wrong button there. Sorry, folks. <laughs> the data to evaluate the hypothesis is not all there yet, end quote, Douglas said. Spraying, quote, spraying too much might contribute to water pollution and green algae blooms. We've seen the dead manatees. We've seen people concerned about their own health, end quote. Abernathy, who lives in South Florida, has been crossing the state present, presenting video evidence gathered in the field as proof that aquatic spraying may play a role in the latest red tide epidemic. Quote, we could be poisoning our own aquifer and it needs to be stopped, end quote, Abernathy said. Quote, this is an antiquated system of plant management. It needs to be gone or at least reduced, end quote. Stewart, who writes a blog for the People's Alliance Supporting Our Obligation to Posterity, or PASOP, 
recently wrote, quote, blaming is easy, but does little to resolve the issue. And uh, continuing, Stewart argues that scientists have known about the potential for red tide and the blue-green algae blooms for years. Quote, we've done a lot of things that have disrupted the quality of our lakes, end quote, Stewart said. Quote, we need to listen to the scientists. Innovation is hard. It requires some different outlook, and it requires commitment, end quote. Douglas is preparing grant applications to fund his research project. For more information on the Florida waterway issue, go to PASOP or change.org. And then the article finishes up with <clears throat> some uh, some citations. Next article, are my pets safe from airborne brevotoxins from the Florida red tides? By Miko Hayes in Environmental, October 6, 2018. Do pets face the same health concerns as humans living near the red tide? Studies show that animals are vulnerable to brevotoxins commonly released by the red tides. Beaches along the east coast of Florida were closed after the water tested positive for Carinia brevis. When guinea pigs were introduced to brevotoxins, data showed the cause of death as respiratory failure. As Carinia brevis, the marine dinoflagellate responsible for causing the red tide, by the way, that means uh, the dinoflagellate means it's not an algae. So we have bacteria, we have dinoflagellates, we have algae that are causing all various problems. They're all part of the stew. Continuing the article, uh, as returning a little bit uh, to the beginning of the sentence, as Carinia brevis, the marine dinoflagellate responsible for causing the red tide, continues to run amok through both the Gulf and now the Atlantic coasts of Florida, health concerns for the residents in the area are being raised. While concerns of the health effects of the red tides on humans has become a topic of discussion, you don't hear much about the possible impact on pets. There is still a lot of research that needs to be conducted on Carinia brevis. While we have a basic understanding of the short-term effects of Carinia brevis on humans, we are still looking on data on the long-term effects, so it should come as no surprise there are still some questions on the safety of pets. There are a few studies that focus on the impact of K. brevis has on animal life. In 1989, a study conducted by Franz and Leclerc exposed guinea pigs to K. brevis. In the study, both brevotoxin and saxitoxin were administered to the guinea pigs via intravenous infusion. Brevotoxins are a common aerosol byproduct of the red tides, as is saxitoxin. Saxitoxin is behind paralytic shellfish poisoning, which can be harmful if one consumes contaminated shellfish. The brevotoxin caused by increased ventilation in the guinea pigs before respiratory failure, uh, the saxitoxin had a depressive effect on ventilation. Even though airways resilience was not increased, nor was dynamic compliance decreased during intoxication, data from the study showed the cause of death to be respiratory failure. Another study looked at the deaths of at least 149 manatees in 1996 along the southeast, southwest coast of Florida. At the time, 
at the same time, brevotoxin producing K brevis in the, in the area. Data suggested the deaths were most likely caused by chronic inhalation or ingestion of brevotoxins. Grossly severe nasopharyngeal pulmonary hepatic, which is liver, renal, which is kidney, and cerebral, which is brain, congestion. So that's nasal pharyngeal, just backing up a little bit, nasopharyngeal is nose and, and sinus tract and uh, pharynx and pulmonary is your uh, blood or your blood vessel, your circulatory system, your blood vessels, and hepatic, liver, and renal, kidney, and cerebral brain. Congestion was present in all cases. Nasopharyngeal and pulmonary edema and hemorrhage were also seen. Consistent microscopic lesions consisted of catarrhal rhinitis, pulmonary hemorrhage and edema, multi-organ hemosiderosis and non-supportive leptomeningitis. Uh, this is getting so scientific, but uh, just to <laughs> point out that these are some pretty systemic, pretty broad diseases and conditions that are <laughs> being stimulated by the Carina brevis toxins, the brevotoxins. Now, continuing the article, immunohistochemical staining using a polyclonal primary antibody to brevotoxin, or GAB, showed intense positive staining of lymphocytes and macrophages in the lung, liver, and secondary lymphoid, lymphoid tissues. River Landing's Animal Clinic's website gives a few tips for those with pets near the red tide. Those near the red tide with pets that spend the majority of their time outside may want to consider bringing them inside during a red tide bloom. I know that's pretty much impossible, but uh, you know, we need to fight the red tide at the source. Uh, just to interject here, we need to stop the pollution of Lake Okeechobee by U.S. Sugar and by Mosaic Phosphate Mining Company that manages about 6,000 acres north of Lake Okeechobee. And then once Lake Okeechobee is not polluted anymore, perhaps by allowing the state of Florida buying up all that farmland, which was, which was um, considered earlier in earlier years, and uh, that plan never followed through under Governor Charlie Crisp. But uh, that, that is a plan that would stop the problem at the source. And then once Lake Okeechobee is no longer being polluted, then we should allow the flow to go south as it was before the 1929 building of the Herbert Hoover Dyke and uh, all the channeling that's allowing it currently to go out to the east coast and west coast of Florida that's causing this algae bloom, this uh, red tide bloom of algae and in dinoflagellates uh, like K. brevis and plankton and bacteria like cyanobacteria. So to continue the article, if you do take your pet to the beach during a red tide, 
do not allow them near the foam that accumulates on the beach. I would just say don't take them out to the beach at all. To continue the article, this foam has been found to be much more toxic than the water. Do not allow your pets to play with dead fish as toxins are stored in their guts and extremely resistant to cooking or freezing. If you notice your pets acting differently, confused, clumsy, or giving the impression they cannot see, experiencing seizures or diarrhea, it is best to take them to a veterinarian to be examined as soon as possible. So that concludes that article, and it just point. I wanted to bring pets into. I wanted to cite this article to bring pets into it because a lot of times, folks are not concerned about an issue, especially when it comes to water, unless it affects their clothes, their kids, their cars, or their critters. Next article: Illinois 14-year-old dies three weeks after HPV vaccination. That's human papillomavirus vaccination by Dana Schmidt, naturalhealth365.com, dated October 21st, 2018, just two days ago. Controversy about the HPV vaccination has circulated almost since its release. Drugs like Gardasil have been linked with the serious permanent health problems and in some cases, death. Now the recent death of a young man from HPV vaccine-related ADEM, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, is adding to the list of vaccine side effects and tragedies. Christopher Bunch of Moline, Illinois, age 14, died on August 14, 2018. His death was caused by complications from acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, a rare neurological disease. The teenager from Moline, Illinois, began experiencing symptoms about a week earlier including nausea, vomiting, and persistent headaches. Christopher slept for days at a time as his health rapidly deteriorated. HPV vaccination warning. ADEM is a deadly vaccine, quote-unquote, side effect. His parents took him to University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital for treatment. From uh, soon after admission, Christopher lost the ability to breathe unassisted. He then became completely paralyzed on his left side. He was given an anti-seizure medication and underwent surgery for swelling in the brain. However, he stayed in critical condition and had to be put on life support. He died two days later. Christopher has been diagnosed with ADEM, a disease of the central nervous system characterized by extreme inflammation. It is most common in children and can be triggered by bacterial or viral infection. However, it can also be caused by receiving a vaccination. The symptoms of ADEM can include drowsiness, confusion, unsteadiness, trouble swallowing, vision issues, weakness, and weakness of the extremities, and coma. Gardasil vaccination has, fright, has a frightening list of vaccine side effects, including stroke and paralysis. In addition to the risk of ADEM, the HPV vaccine, Gardasil, has also been associated with stroke, seizure conditions, kidney failure, Guillain-Barre syndrome, a serious neurological disease, deep venous thrombosis, which are blood clots in the legs, pulmonary emboli, life-threatening blood clots in the lungs. The HPV vaccine contains both a toxic adjuvant, aluminum, and polysorbate 80, which is linked with anaphylactic reactions, encephalitis, and multiple sclerosis. Christopher received the Gardasil HPV, or human papilloma, papilloma virus, 
vaccine three weeks before passing away. And believe it or not, ADEM is actually listed on the Gardasil package insert as a possible quote-unquote side effect of the HPV vaccination. The human papilloma virus is extremely common. Just about every adult will become exposed to it at some point in their lives. Since it is often a precursor to cancer, many parents seek out the vaccine for their adolescent children. However, with so many terrifying side effects, the HPV vaccination Gardasil is not the answer. The best natural defense against the HPV virus is keeping the immune system and general health strong. A diet rich in organic vegetables, fruits, and lean meats is beneficial. Vitamin C has also shown a tremendous promise in fighting the virus as well as any cancerous cells that develop. And as you may already know, vitamin C is an antioxidant, antiviral, anti-inflammatory, and general immune system enhancing nutrient. To be perfectly clear, the vitamin C protocol can protect health and defend against viruses like HPV. Best of all, vitamin C is affordable and has zero deadly quote-unquote side effects. Thank goodness. That concludes that article. The sources they have listed are the vaccinereaction.org, rxinjuryhelp.com, journals.plos.org, that's journals.p as in Paul, los.org, and Natural Health 365. They're referring to themselves in previous articles. So we're going to play a clip here that gets into the HPV vaccine in just a moment. But first, I want to mention that we're going to, uh, I'm going to mention uh, the news here that uh, there's a, an article, or there's a journal of the American Medical Association that came, uh, article, or pardon me, a clinical study that is very extensive, meaning they surveyed, uh, let's see, um, if I have it here, I'll get to it, uh, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of uh, subjects. Uh, subjects. Oh, you know, please uh, get that clip ready, back it up to where you had it. <laughs> but um, yeah, back, uh, just to uh, cite that stat, uh, the study was of 68,946 French adults. And it points out that, uh, I'll just read the title of it, Association of Frequency of Organic Food Consumption with Cancer Risk. And uh, I'll uh, point out just, the just a quick summary of it before we play that clip. We'll give you some more time there to get it ready. Question, what is the association between an organic food-based diet, i.e. a diet less likely to contain pesticide residues, and cancer risk? And the question should also be composed uh, to include that uh, not only pesticides, herbicides, fungicides um, would also not be included in organic food. Findings of this study in a population-based cohort study of 68,946 French adults, a significant reduction in the risk of cancer was observed among high consumers of organic food meaning a higher frequency of organic food consumption was associated with a reduced risk of cancer. If the findings are confirmed, promoting organic food consumption in the general population could be a promising preventative strategy against cancer. And they go on to say that, well, we need to continue doing studies, but that's how all the 
every clinical study you find always ends that way. More studies are needed. We need more money. But uh, that's a quick summary of it. I compliment CNN for reporting on it. So I'm not going to read their uh, report. But suffice it to say that other news outlets are reporting that, oh, it, this is not clinically or it's not st statistically significant. It showed a small increase in cancer or those who are diagnosed from cancer recovering from cancer. So uh, the organic diet is the way to go. And uh, again, I compliment CNN on reporting on it, but uh, must point out that, you know, when you have such a mainstream slave stream news source reporting on the truth, they're just retaining some of their credibility by reporting the obvious. Otherwise, they have no following at all if they didn't report the truth. So let's uh, get that clip ready. And um, the clip we're going to play is from the High Wire with Dell Bigtree, dated October 4th, 2018, where Dell Bigtree interviews Dr. Sin Lee, medical doctor, pathologist, director of Milford Molecular Diagnostic. And the show is on the HPV vaccine we were just mentioning earlier, entitled Expose, the, new, the HPV vaccine. It's regarding the new book uh, entitled The HPV Vaccine on Trial, Seeking Justice for a Generation Betrayed by Mary Holland, Kim Mack Rosenberg, and others that was just released October 2nd, 2018. Again, that's the HPV vaccine on trial, seeking justice for a generation betrayed. So this is once again, the October 4th, 2018 edition of Highwire with Dell Victory, an excerpt, just a quick uh, clip of about 12 minutes that we're gonna play him interviewing Dr. Sin Lee, MD, pathologist, director of Milford Molecular Diagnostic. Please let that clip go. Dr. Lee, first of all, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, do this interview very quickly. I know you're busy. A lot of your work is so important. Um, in this book that I've read, uh, the uh, HPV vaccine on trial, uh, it discusses uh, your contribution to this discussion. Now, before anyone ever got involved, before uh, Norma Erickson reached out to you, you had already gotten involved with HPV vaccine. Why? What, what was your first uh, question and, and issue with HPV? Yeah, actually, I've been a pathologist uh, reading pap smear for prevention of uh, cervical cancer for 40, 50 years. Okay, okay, uh, so you in, were working with HPV for a very long time then? For a very long time, Okay. Right. yeah. Not for, not particularly for vaccine, but however, when my paper was ready to be published in 2006 or, uh, or seven, the HPV vaccine came out at the time and uh, we were informed that uh, if the women were already infected with a vaccine-related HPV genotype, stops. so the women should be avoiding the HPV vaccine because uh, uh, because when if the woman was already infected with HPV 16 or 18, and you in, inject the vaccine to prevent 16 and 18 infection, actually that would traumatize. Uh, the um, the local inflammation 
and that actually promote you know, precancerous uh, changes. Oh, okay. Uh, therefore, therefore, I, uh, in, in my first paper, when I published, when I published the first paper, uh, and actually I advocated and recommended the HPV genotyping should be accurate, uh, so that uh, the vaccine uh, should be given to the women who have not been infected or positive for HPV 16 and 18 before they receive the vaccine. So you yeah. put that in paper. You also reached out to the FDA to make that point, correct? Yeah, I sort of suggest the FDA to, to make that point on the paper, right? So then um, you're contacted by Norma Erickson, who my understanding is she provided you with a story of a girl who was only 13 years old from Toronto, I believe, who right after the vaccination had um, the HPV vaccine, had rheumatoid arthritis, and then HPV appeared in her blood test. And so the question was, could she have gotten HPV from the vaccine? Now, was it possible to get the virus from the vaccine? Was that supposed to be something that could happen? Uh, I did not believe it. You know, when Norma you know, asked me to test it, I said it was impossible because uh, the vaccine was supposed to be HPV DNA free. So I did not want to test it, yeah. and, uh, but uh, Norma insisted. And I said, okay, I wanted to see uh, the local lab. So the patient asked uh, the laboratory in Toronto, send me the report. And uh, the report said they did find HPV DNA in the patient's blood. And, uh, and then I spoke with the PhD yeah, in the lab. Uh, the doctor on the other side convinced me that uh, he found the HPV DNA in this girl's blood. And she so, was not sexually active at the time. She shouldn't have had HPV in her blood, correct? Right. And finally, uh, some other mothers uh, told me that they want to have the test. Yeah? And I said, before I test any patient's uh, blood, I want to see whether the HPV vaccine really contains HPV DNA or not, you know? Yeah. Otherwise, uh, the waste of my time to test the patient's uh, blood uh, if the vaccine didn't contain HPV DNA at all. And so you tested the vaccines themselves. Originally, I think it was two vials. What did you find? Yeah, the two vials, a, a local pediatrician uh, uh, sent me uh, the, first, the first vial. So I tested and it turned out to be positive I said, well, really, maybe something there. So then, yeah, then I agreed to test the other vials. And in the end, how many vials did you test all together? And uh, at the time, I think all together about 16, about 16, I forgot the exact number, right? 16 and you, from, yeah, from different countries. So from all over the world, did they all have DNA, HPV DNA in them? Yes, they do. They did, yeah, yeah, yeah. from different lots. They all have HPV, uh, L1 DNA fragments in it. Right. Wow. Uh, what, what genotypes? Did it have a specific genotype to it? Well, the, the genotypes are HPV 16, 11, and 18. Three types. I found three types. I did not find HPV 6. So why was this important? Why does it matter that there was, there was DNA, uh, HPV DNA in the vaccine? Did that matter? Was that something that uh, shouldn't have been there? It matters, uh, retrospectively, right, we, we matters. 
because uh, in order for the HPV vaccine to be active, it needs uh, a very strong adjuvant. And the HPV DNA fragments combined to the aluminum uh, will serve that purpose. There's an extra very strong potent uh, adjuvant to boost the immune reaction. Now, isn't it true that in order to get the vaccine approved, they were supposed to have cleaned all the DNA out, that one of the issues was the FDA said you have, there can't be HPV DNA in it, and yet you found DNA. What did the FDA say about that? Initially, uh, on paper, uh, the paper that the Merck submitted to the FDA, they claim all the DNA have been cleaned, you know, uh, cleared up. Yeah. And after I found the DNA, uh, fragments in it, and uh, we report to the FDA. Then the FDA said, uh, "There's no surprise that we knew it all, all along. There's no risk uh, to it." So, so the That's original paperwork the said it wasn't there. Then you called them out on it, and then they changed the story and said we always knew there was DNA fragments. Right. This is the Food and Drug Administration. This is supposed to be a very important health organization and 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 government body that looks out for safety. How could they so easily just change their story? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so then lastly, another part of the book, it goes on to describe the fact that then uh, Norma provided you, there was, a, there was an 18-year-old girl, I believe, in New Zealand who had died from HPV vaccine, um, and the mother was able to get the, send you the tissue, and you tested that tissue what did you find in that tissue that you found surprising? Yeah, it, it was very surprising that uh, it was a court order. There was a court inquest on the death of the girl. And the mother asked the judge uh, to send me the, the blood sample and the spleen sample. So the blood and the spleen uh, samples, okay. And I, thought, I was surprised that uh, I could find uh, the HPV DNA in non-B confirmation uh, in those samples, similar to the uh, ones in the HPV vaccine. Now, yeah. what is specific to and why is it important? There's non-B confirmation and then B uh, confirmation. What is the difference and why is it important? Right. The, the important thing is that the, the DNA we've uh, in the HPV DNA, we usually detect it in the patient's uh, material, let's say for the, for the, from the pap smear cells, right? The natural uh, HPV DNA in the uh, HPV cancer or in the pap smear, these are straight, it's, it's, it's called B conformation. That means a linear, the, uh, a linear DNA mo molecule. And uh, the enzyme can degrade them, decompose them, and, uh, and cut them off and so get the, rid of So them. the natural form of HPV in the body is B confirmation, and enzymes can essentially dissolve them and extract them from the body. Yeah, get rid of them quickly. Okay. Uh, get rid of them and then excrete the, the, the DNA from the urine. Get rid of them. Okay. For non-B confirmation uh, DNA, the, the normal body enzyme cannot degrade them, cannot cut them out. So they, they stay in the body and stay in the cell for a long, long time. 
So, and that is the form that's in the vaccine. You could sort of prove that it came from the vaccine. Is it sort of, a, is it, I mean, is my understanding, is it more of a man-made type of, of, of form? Yes, it's correct. Because, uh, because the, uh, the long DNA uh, molecules, when they attach to the aluminum, uh, they become kinking, like they use, you throw a, 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 a piece of yarn, you know, uh, onto a, a bob wire. The, the, the bob wire will catch uh, uh, the piece of uh, wire uh, uh, of yarn, right, at a different location, and making a knot. Uh, so the enzyme cannot go through it. And it just persists in the body and then, then can obviously go on to create all sorts of autoimmune disease, I would guess. Is that what would lead to autoimmune yeah. disease issues? Right. It's, it becomes a, a long-acting uh, stimulator. Now, before you did this investigation, did, were, you a, were you happy there was an HPV vaccine? Did you support the HPV vaccine? Uh, no. <laughs> At the very beginning, I thought it was uh, was unnecessary thing because I have been reading pap smear uh, for 40, 50 years uh, for cancer prevention. And I know that uh, you know, we have had a good uh, method to prevent cervical cancer. Actually, the only cancer we can prevent yeah, by doing good pap smear. And uh, when the HPV testing come, comes in, then good. So the HPV testing is more uh, sensitive. So we do a good HPV testing, right? To, to screen the precancerous uh, tissue. And um, that would actually effectively uh, eliminate cervical cancer death, actually. So and we just, knew it. Just, and you knew it. You knew if you just screened for it, if we had better screening in girls, then we would never even have a problem with cervical cancer. Yeah, it's cor correct. And in the United States, actually, no one should die of cervical cancer. And actually, no one should have invasive cervical cancer. If any woman develop cervical cancer in the United States under regular gynecological care, it's a practically a, a potential malpractice suit. Wow. Uh, so compelling. Uh, I, you know, I know that you're a scientist. You've approached this from a, a basis of science. Uh, and I want to thank you for being out there and doing the incredible work you have through your entire career, and thank you for taking the time to elucidate these, these issues for us. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dale, for having me. Thank you. All right. Take care. That's one of those interviews you do in a career where you get some answers that you never expected. When I, I actually thought that he was going to be a fan of the HPV vaccine since he'd been looking at HPV for, you know, decades. And when he made that statement that if you were to die or, or get invasive cancer under uh, cervical cancer under uh, good gynecological care, then that would be a grounds for malpractice. point out that I am counting on your intelligence. This is not I was taught to make television and many of the producers that work with me. We are counting on the fact that you actually want the science. And so when you want to research the science, besides the fact that you are going to go out and get this oh, book, right. you can uh, well, we, we have the clip uh, that's uh, still playing, but um, Vaughn, if you would like to 
keep that rolling. We have a few more minutes of it that I think would be very beneficial for the audience. So we'll speak with the authors of the books and uh, the book next that uh, Del Bigtree was interviewing. If you could continue with that clip. I can, I-C-A-N, and you will see the information provided in our show. Just as Norma said in SaneVax, they do not publish or do anything that can't be backed by official sources. That's exactly how we approach this show. But I have to say, Norma, you are an incredible powerhouse. Uh, what was it like? I imagine that some of the testimony that I just heard there was happening in this meeting in Japan, health officials all there. I, what was that moment like? I mean, it, it, the world changed right there. Japan's one of the few people, one of the few places that really has backed away from this vaccine, and you were there. Can you give me a sense of what that moment was like? It's amazing. Um, the successes that are happening around the world right now are phenomenal. When I first started saying Vax, you never ever saw negative article traditional mainstream media about vaccines. Never. Now we're seeing articles in the BMJ, articles in the Lancet, articles in the New York Times that are questioning at least this vaccine. And this vaccine definitely needs to be questioned. Um, the World Health Organization, just so your readers can get a sense of how benign HPV infections really are. The, H, the World Health Organization said of all the women infected with any high-risk HPV strains, now that's not just the ones that are in the vaccine, but it's the other 12 to 15 that are considered to be high-risk. Of any woman exposed to any of those high-risk, only zero point one five percent will ever go on to in develop invasive cervical cancer so societies are promoting a vaccine for the elimination of a virus that is benign 99.85 of the time in fact, it when you just do that, does not make sense. it doesn't make sense. When you, we were talking uh, uh, before that when you, you know, you can say 0.15%. I'm always trying to figure out how people need to hear these numbers because essentially we're talking, about, I mean, that's, that's not 1%. It's not half a percent. We're talking 0. Point, was it 0. 0.15 or 0. 0.015? Yes, 0. 0.15. So, so a tiny fraction, meaning, and, and when you, we were talking before, you said, and I'm, I'm going to say it for you because your internet's breaking up a little bit, that essentially out of 100,000 100, women, eight will develop uh, cervical cancer and two essentially would die of this issue out of 100,000. But if we give 100,000 girls the HPV vaccine, 2,300 of them will suffer life-threatening illnesses. So we, in order to try and protect eight women out of 100,000 from the disease and two from potentially dying, we're willing to risk the lives of 2,300 
people that get the vaccine. Those numbers, to me, I think, personally, I don't know if anyone here on, on my set is willing to say it. I think if you looked at the risk-reward benefit, it is clear that you should stay clear of this vaccine. Norma, uh, if people want to really see all the awesome parts of your story, we could go into many parts of them. Again, in this book, uh, HPV, Vaccine on Trial, uh, I'm a I'm a fan. You are a hero. So keep up the good work. People can check out Saint Vax and the work you're doing. Um, keep up the good work. You are changing the world. You're one of those people that is really making a difference. And I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, please let your viewers know that it's SaneVax dot not dot com. We are a dot nonprofit org? organization. SaneVax dot org. Everybody, sanevax.org. Thank you so much for joining us, Norma. Take care. Thank you, Dale, for everything you're doing. All right. You're welcome. So, I mean, it's an incredible part of the book. It really grabbed me. We took some time there. Dr. Lee, uh, you can tell this is a man who knows what he's talking about. The numbers just don't add up. It doesn't make any sense. And around the world, like she's saying, we're seeing change around the world. Um, very quickly, you know, Japan's on the radar, but Ireland. Ireland is is making a big fuss over this. They're, they're, mm -hmm. They seem to be forcing this vaccine, but it's a place where, unlike Japan, where the governments listen. And by the way, we when we were investigating this, uh, apparently Japan is the only place where politicians actually ha are personally held responsible for what happens to their constituents. So when the head of the health department or one of the high-ups that promoted this vaccine when they saw those injuries, my understanding is they took his job away and and sent him into some, you know, right. Siberian-style research group or, you know. Right. Um, so they take it very seriously. I wish we had that in this country. I wish all around the world politicians were personally held responsible for decisions they make. But Ireland, what, what, what happened in Ireland? What's going on in Ireland? Well, Ireland's kind of unique um, in terms of... Uh, its position because around the world, unlike in the US, uh, around the, well, we have school-based programs. So there's Canada, Ireland, um, Australia, UK, and that includes Scotland and Wales, um, of course. Um, and Ireland's unique in that it started off with a very high uptake rate of 85 to 90 percent. When you say school-based, do they give the vaccine yeah. at school? They bring the kids into the gymnasium, okay. they lay out the gym mats because, as you know, the girls have to lay down for 15 minutes. Because a lot of them faint. They pass they out. They hit the Syncope floor. Syncope is this one of the biggest all the time. reactions. Oh, that's just normal. That's just normal. Right. Don't worry right. about it. You pass out after right. this vaccine. Don't. No harm. And it's recognized that in order to get this high uptake, the best place is in the schools. So um, Ireland uniquely has rejected the vaccine in the last few years. And the reason for this, um, well, number one, um, the parents spoke up and for the main group that formed their parental support group called Regret, and uh, they started speaking loudly. And they, you know, asked the government to help their children. There's socialized medicine there, so, you know, it's free. But in order for it to be free, that's complicated. You have to get on lists, and the doctors there don't know how to treat the girls. They don't understand the symptoms. And there's a big denial that the vaccine is related to them. Um, but Regret, you know, made a video similar to Denmark. I think Japan, Denmark, and Ireland have been put in the same group. But unlike um, Denmark and Japan, Ireland's English-speaking. The girls are speaking out, and um, it tends to reach more people. It's almost like it, with the, 
Ireland is like a battleground. It yes, looks like, it's where the you really battle have right. the parents mm -hmm. that are battling the medical establishment, government, and they're really clashing. Started from Del Victory, who's interviewing the uh, the uh, on the August fourteenth. Uh, uh, pardon me, it's October fourth uh, edition of the Higher Wire with uh, Dell Victory and uh, on, on the dangers of uh, the HPV vaccine. So uh, we'll continue. I'll continue the next hour by telling you who was actually speaking. You're listening to the Liberation Station radio show. TheLiberationStation.com is the website, and we'll be right back in just a few minutes. So stay tuned. Liberation Station radio show, October 23rd, 2018, second hour. I'm your host, Chris Steiner, and we were just listening to, to correct my outro there, that was the October 4th, 2018, not the October 14th, but October 4th, 2018 edition of The High Wire with Dell Bigtree. Sometimes I mess up, and doing live radio is quite the high wire, so... Um, I do uh, have to correct myself sometimes, and he was interviewing Dr. Sin Lee, MD, pathologist, director of Milford Molecular Diagnostic, followed by, let's see, that is Norma Erickson, a journalist, Norma Erickson of sanevax.org, S-A-N-E-V-A-X.org, sanevax.org, followed by Eileen Iorio and Kim and Mac Rosenberg, who are two of the authors of the new book, The HPV Vaccine on Trial, Seeking Justice for a Generation Betrayed, also by Mary Holland, just released October 2nd. So I hate to be so alarming, but I'm hoping to just prevent a lot of damage that these HPV vaccines like Gardasil and I understand there's also Cervix, but it seems like from the news reports there are a lot more deaths and side effects from the Gardasil vaccine. So I'm trying to avoid these problems. And if you know you heard Dr. Sin Lee, MD, that and the the uh, others that I mentioned, they're pointing out that well the risks aren't worth it. I mean you have such an outrageous level of side effects and deaths from the vaccine but a very minuscule chance of cancer if you suffer the consequences of 
the uh, HPV, they say the human human papillo, papilloma virus, I always have a hard time saying that, that the cancer that's caused by HPV is much less, astronomically less than the all the deaths and side effects. So um, the statistics were given already, and these are official government statistics. So um, I just don't want to be alarming. I'm trying to help everyone avoid the potholes that are laid out, out for us to fall in. You know, they want return customers, medicine does. And if they can make one person ill, but not necessarily kill them immediately, then it takes another person, at least one other person, to take care of them, sometimes for a lifetime. And we do cover other remedies, other treatments you know, on the show in the past. So I don't want folks to feel like they, if they don't follow... Uh, the advice that is being given here, just uh, I would say my advice is don't take the HPV vaccine. Then if you don't follow that advice, there's no problem in my book. I'm not going to shun you and medical uh, professionals shouldn't shun you, especially the ones who are alternatively oriented and very familiar with these very effective recovery protocols and treatments. And sometimes it just includes uh, supplements. I would like to take the shotgun approach on the detox blog on the website at theliberationstation.com. That's T-H-E, liberationstation.com. If you go over to the blogs and you see uh, that uh, there's a detox blog that lists a lot of good supplements and foods that you can take that really help detoxification. If I had to choose just one, as I've said in the past, I would go with calcium bentonite clay. Very, very good. If you'd like to join in the chat room, you can go to the website, theliberationstation.com, and just click on listen slash archives. And if you want to contribute to the show, I will read your messages. You can stay anonymous, and no one has to know who you are, even in the chat room. I'd like to also announce what I should have started out the show announcing is that Susan Glickman will be our guest next week on the October 30th show, October 30th, 2018. She's the Florida Director of Southern Alliance for Clean Energy, cleanenergy.org. So we look forward to that. And she reminds us to vote yes on Amendment 9 on the next ballot coming up in November. It's uh, Amendment 9 is adding an amendment to the Florida Constitution that will permanently protect Floridians from opportunities, opportunists, that is. <laughs> we don't want to protect anyone from opportunities. Well, protect Floridians from opportunists who would put our economy at risk for the narrow interests of the oil industry. The amendment works by banning drilling for the extraction of oil or other or natural gas in Florida's state waters, but this amendment needs 60% voter approval to pass. Check out yes on nine number nine florida.org. Yes on nine florida.org and you can learn more there. So uh, we have that, and uh, we have that in the news, and we have Susan Glickman to look forward to. 
And I also should back up a little bit and mention that you can link to Dell Big Trees broadcasts that are live on YouTube and Facebook. You can go to the homepage at theliberationstation.com, T-H-E, liberationstation.com. And down on the left, there is the banner, High Wire with Dell Big Tree. The link also there to Facebook Live and YouTube Live. It has thousands of views. It's amazing coverage that he's getting. And uh, I really admire all his hard work all his research and experts that he brings forward. He's also on UBN Radio and UBNRadio.com. That's Universal Broadcasting Network, UBNRadio.com. And let's see if he has his website up yet at thehighwire.com. It's been under construction, so I just thought I'd better check. Yeah, okay, see, he's got a little bit up there now. That's good to see it, thehighwire.com. And uh, next we will continue on to our next article, if my computer cooperates. Here we go. All right. Now uh, we have... A, sci a, a clinical study, we have real science here from the National Institutes of Health website. I just became aware of this, although this clinical study was done back in 2009. It's entitled, What is Regressive Autism and Why Does It Occur? Is the Consequence of Multisystemic Dysfunction Affecting the Elimination of Heavy Metals and the Ability to Regulate Neural temperature. And uh, just a quick ex excerpt from this long study reads, the MMR, meaning the measles, mumps, rubella, the MMR vaccine has been linked to autism, Crohn's disease, which is a digestive disorder, inflammatory bowel disease, and there are two references on that statement, and other serious chronic stomach problems, and there's another reference for that, epilepsy, brain damage, including meningitis, that's swelling of the brain, and there are two, study, two references of studies for that. Cerebral palsy, pancreatitis, that's inflammation of the pancreas, and there's a study for that. And diabetes mellitus, and there are three studies, three references for that. Encephalopathy, encephalitis, and there are two studies for that. Hearing and vision problems, arthritis, behavioral and learning problems, chronic fatigue syndrome, diabetes, Guillain-Barre syndrome, idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpurea, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, or SSPE, leukemia, multiple sclerosis, and death. That's a quote. The MMR vaccine has been linked to all that, and that is from the 2009 study. You'll find it on the liberationstation.com on the show page after the show tonight possibly as late as tomorrow i'll link to that for the show page the particular page for this edition the october 23rd 2018 edition again the title of the study is what is regressive autism and why does it occur is the consequence of multi-systemic dysfunction affecting the elimination of heavy metals and ability to regulate neural temperature 
So as I've covered and uh, we've had the experts and doctors on to cover in the past, it's very important to help your body detoxify. Even from things like heavy metals, we can detoxify from. So, uh, you know, you're, it, it's amazing what your body can do. We, you have all those uh, shows linked up on the website. Now, the next article is dated October 21st, two days ago by Elaine Castillo from naturalnews.com entitled Go Natural Homeopathy is an Effective Therapy for Anxiety and Depression. Having anxiety and depression disorder can greatly affect a person's life. In fact, depression is the number one cause of disability worldwide. To alleviate the symptoms of these psychiatric disorders, psychotropic and antidepressant drugs are often prescribed by physicians. And I also must point out by interjecting here that if you go over to the blog section at the website at theliberationstation.com, under the blog section there is psychiatric medications often provoke violence. And I have several links linked up there to several websites and books, four books listed there, that these uh, psychiatric antidepressant anti-anxiety medications often do provoke violence and it says so right on the drug insert that they provoke homicidal and suicidal ideations and in the news that you will find many times the majority of the times over 90 percent of the time when you see somebody committing a horrific heinous act that they have been on these anti-anxiety, antidepressant medications, or they have been withdrawing from them, meaning they go off them too quickly. These are the types of medications that if you have to take them, you get on them and you get off of them as fast as possible, in my honest opinion. That's my opinion. I'm not a doctor, but I like to play one on the radio, and I've seen so much harm done by these drugs that I can only suggest natural options and uh, I need to set up a blog for that as well, for nat natural mood lifters and brain boosters, because I do have a text file on that. I'm going to put that in my notes. That that should be coming on the website by tomorrow, um, a list uh, of those items that will be under the blogs section as well. Now, continuing the article. Where was I? Okay. In addition to this... There are also a number of general practitioners that recommend the use of homeopathic therapies as a substitute or in conjunction with conventional medicine. According to the results of a study in the BMC, that's a British medical um, journal or complementary and alternative medicine, patients that consulted with certified homeopathic practitioners had the most significant improvements in depression compared to patients that were given conventional care. Anxiety and depression disorder can affect almost anyone, regardless of age or gender. Although there are psychotropic drugs and antidepressants that can be used for treating psychiatric disorders, these conditions are still left untreated 75% of the time. Psychotropic drugs tend to be expensive, which is why not many people are able to access them. On the other hand, there are also cases where patients take the prescribed drugs, but their condition still doesn't improve. In addition to this, psychotropic drugs are also known for causing unwanted side effects like sleep disorders, loss of bone mass, and weight gain. Homeopathy is a holistic system of healing that involves the use of natural products to restore health. 
It is commonly used for treating diseases like diarrhea, allergies, insomnia, lower back pain, and psychiatric disorders. Unlike conventional drugs, homeopathic drugs are relatively inexpensive and do not cause adverse side effects. To determine the effects of homeopathic, homeopathic medicine, medical practice on patients with anxiety and depression disorder, a population-based epidemiological cohort, or meaning cohort meaning group, study was conducted. For this study, three major groups were observed. One group of patients consulted with practitioners that prescribed only conventional drugs along with conventional medicine. And um, I didn't lose my place. My mouse is acting a little bit squirrely. And uh, to continue, uh, lastly, you know, let me let me just restart that to be clear. One group of patients consulted with practitioners that prescribed only convention that prescribed only conventional drugs, while another, the second group, prescribed homeopathic drugs along with conventional medicine. Lastly, the third group consulted with certified homeopathic practitioners. Overall, the study had 710 participants, so that's a pretty broad study. The study was conducted for a period of 12 months, with information being collected through questionnaires and a series of follow-up interviews. Results of the study showed that patients that consulted with certified homeopathic practitioners used psychotropic drugs less, yet they also exhibited the most significant clinical improvement compared to patients that consulted with conventional practitioners. The patients that consulted with homeopathic practitioners were 1.7 times more likely to have improved conditions. The researchers attributed to this, this to differences in homeopathic diagnosis and management since certified homeopathic practitioners are trained in both homeopathic and conventional medicine. Homeopathy is also specifically catered to each individual so the given treatments were more appropriate. Aside from this, the researchers also attributed the results to the inefficiency in inefficacy of conventional drugs. For these results, it can be determined that homeopathy is an effective treatment for anxiety and depression. This shows that homeopathy is a safe and inexpensive alternative for harmful and ineffective psychotropic drugs. Related study, antidepressant drugs actually cause many people to have worse depression. There's a link to that. Fast facts about homeopathy. Homeopathy was developed by a German doctor and chemist named Samuel Hahnemann. This practice was primarily based on the law of similars, which just says that in order to cure certain diseases, substances that induce the same symptoms in healthy people. Unlike conventional medicine, homeopathy supports the symptoms instead of suppressing them. Aside from this, the studies conducted by Hahnemann also revealed that lowering the dosage of the substance makes the medicine more effective. Nowadays, homeopathic medicines, which are produced in tablet, liquid, or powder forms, can be found in grocery stores, pharmacies, and health food stores. Since these medications contain small dilutions of substances, they are generally safe for everyone, including infants, children, and pregnant women. Aside from this, they are also environmentally friendly and cruelty-free. Uh, learn more natural ways to treat depression by visiting health.news. 
today. And there are several references to this article, including science.news, BMCC, complement a altern biomedcentral.com, adaa.org, unityrehab.com, psychchondros.com, homeopathycenter.org, britishhomeopathic.org. I know I went all through through that list fast of references, but you can check them out at, uh, once again, naturalnews.com, the article from two days ago entitled Go Natural Homeopathy is an Effective Therapy for Anxiety and Depression by Elaine Castillo. And so, uh, yeah, with homeopathy, it's really amazing as I was emphasizing my the words there carefully because it's amazing that when you can dilute something, it actually has a greater effect. It stimulates an energetic response in the body. And a lot of folks would say, well, gee, if you dilute something greater, then it should have less of an effect. And you can uh, reduce something uh, past beyond what's called uh, 32x or 32, uh, I'm not sure what that would be in cc's. Homeopathic medicines are are measured in x or cc, and the greater the number, it means the greater the dilution, the less of the active ingredient. So if you dilute something past uh, 32x, I believe it is, or uh, the uh, dilution of alvergado, then it's no longer detectable. And um, I wish I uh, had all my notes ready here. I just uh, thought I would mention that. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll have to, uh, alvergado, that's it. Alvargardo is the dilution beyond which the active ingredient is no longer detectable. So you you know you test it and you won't be able to determine what the ingredient is, and you'll still be able to oftentimes, if the homeopathic medicine is correct for you, then it will be helpful. Uh, you really need a good trained homeopath to survey what your condition and your symptoms are. It takes some time. There are the uh, generalized homeopathic medications that are offered in uh, health stores and, and even drug stores these days, and they're kind of a broad-based shock and approach. So one of those ingredients is bound to help, but uh, really does take a good homeopath to uh, really hit the nail on the head. We had uh, Robert Scott Bell, who was on last week in the second hour, and if you'd like to go back and check him out, um, he had a lot to say, and, and uh, you know, even a, about homeopathic nosodes, I can't emphasize enough that you can gain antibodies for more pathog against more pathogens, more bacteria that are harmful, and viri viruses that are harmful. There are nosodes available for more pathogens than there are vaccines, and you can get a nice high level of antibodies to those harmful bacteria and viruses or viri. And you can do it safely. So you don't need vaccines necessarily to build up a high antibody level. You can do it with homeopathic nosodes. And, uh, you know, basically makes vaccines obsolete. So that point cannot be emphasized enough. If you need to have a 
um, blood antibody titer test, T-I-T-E-R, you can check to see your antibody levels. So that's a great way to safely raise your antibody levels without having to worry about getting vaccines. And uh, the question should be posed in any situation where vaccines are said to be mandated, like uh, in a healthcare worker situation where you're working at a hospital or, you know, for the military or branches of the government uh, or any other situation where contractually you have to agree to get a vaccine in order to work there. Well, the question should be raised more and more to bring awareness to homeopathic nosodes that why can't I just have a blood antibody test? I can take my homeopathic nosodes or maybe I already have the antibodies that you say I need to work here. And for a lot of different vaccines, there are not, uh, uh, there's not lasting immunity. You have to get an anti, you have to have uh, a booster shot every two to 10 years, depending on the vaccine, it's anywhere from two to 10 years, in order to get those antibodies back. So it's not a lasting immunity like you would get, or a longer lasting, often lifetime immunity that you would get if you contracted the pathogen yourself. Sometimes you might have an antibody, but you never get the symptoms of the disease because you have a good immune system, because your biological terrain is inhospitable. That's not, not friendly to the germs. Say you have a high level of vitamin C, it prevents viral replication or bacterial replication, or uh, say silver, silver hydrosol, which is ionic silver, it's just the ions of, a sil of the silver. It's not the actual molecule when you're when it comes to ionic minerals. Just the ion is much better absorbed than the actual mineral. So, you know, say your body, you're rich in ionic silver, it's part of your regimen, or say uh, part of your regimen is uh, selenium. Um, I like uh, SEMSC, a variety of selenium. Uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Scott Bell recommends uh, food-based uh, selenium but uh, certainly not sodium selenite, which is harmful. And um, there have been some people raising issues about uh, amino acid chelated or amino acid bound selenium that can cross-link somehow uh, those, the, the amino acid L-methionine could interact, could uh, cross-link with other amino acids. I'm not sure exactly uh, if that's true or not. I haven't checked out any if any studies exist on that. So uh, anyhow, all these things you can do to make your body inhospitable, you make your terrain inhospitable to bad germ to the germs. So uh, you know it'd be like trying to take a tricycle across the, a moon landing. You're not going to be able to do it. Well, compare that tricycle to harmful bacteria and viruses. And if your body is a moonscape, it's, it's not able to, uh, these germs aren't able to reproduce. And yet you can still contract them and your antibodies can be mobilized to defeat them before you ever develop symptoms if you have a good strong immune system. And even often if you develop an antibody for a germ, and you don't have a healthy, viable biological terrain, then that germ can overtake you, can cause symptoms until you can mobilize your immune system to overcome it. 
it's much easier with antibodies, but antibodies are not the be all end all of overcoming disease or to preventing disease. And neither are vaccines. <laughs> so that's the whole moral of the story. Well, let's see here. We have a half hour left, and I'm selective about the priority of the articles to cover here. So I'm going to choose this one. Over 90% of sampled salt brands globally found to contain microplastics, according to Greenpeace International, October 17th, 2018. And that are, those are sea salt samples. Over 90% of sampled salt brands globally were found to contain microplastics, with the highest number coming from salt sourced in Asia, according to a new study co-designed by Kim Seung-Kyu, professor at Incheon National University and, and Greenpeace East Asia. The study, which has been published in Environmental Science and Technology, a peer-reviewed scientific journal, analyzed 39 various salt brands globally, showing that plastic contamination in sea salt was highest, followed by lake salt, then rock salt. An indicator of the levels of plastic pollution in the areas where the salt was sourced. Only three of the salt brands studied did not contain any microplastic particles in the replicated samples. Quote, recent studies have found plastics in seafood, wildlife, tap water, and now in salt. It's clear that there is no escape from this plastics crisis, especially as it continues to leak into our waterways and oceans, end quote, said Mikyung Kim campaigner at Greenpeace East Asia. Quote, we need to stop plastic pollution at its source. For the, for the health of people and our environment, it's incredibly important that corporations reduce their reliance on throwaway plastics immediately, end quote. Building on previous studies of microplastic pollution in salt, this research is the first of its scale to look at contaminant levels of the geographical spread of sea salt and its correlation with environmental discharge and pollution levels of plastics. The study highlights Asia was as a hotspot for global plastic pollution, meaning that the ecosystem and human health in Asian marginal seas could potentially be at greater risk because of severe maritime microplastics pollution. In one Indonesian sea salt sample, researchers found the highest quantities of microplastics. The country is considered to be the second worst plastic emitter in the world's oceans. Assuming intake of 10 grams per day of salt, the average, the average adult consumer could ingest approximately 2,000 microplastics each year through salt alone, as the study suggests. Even after discounting the highly contaminated Indonesian salt sample from the study, the average adult could still be consuming many hundreds of microplastics each year. Quote, the findings suggest that human ingestion of microplastics via marine products is strongly related to plastic emissions in a given region, end quote said Professor Kim Seung-Kyu, corresponding author of the study. Quote, in order to limit our exposure to microplastics, preventative measures are required. 
such as controlling the environmental discharge of mismanaged plastics, and more importantly, reducing plastic waste, end quote, he added. Earlier this month, Greenpeace, along with the Break Free from Plastic Coalition, released a report naming Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and Nestle as among the most frequent companies whose packaging relies on the single-use plastics that pollute our oceans and waterways globally. And that's the end of the article. Many references follow. Again, that's found at greenpeace.org. Over 90% of sampled salt brands globally found to contain microplastics. Well, what do we do? We can demand that hemp or cannabis even, of course, be allowed to make plastics because they're biodegradable. There's also cassava root plastic. We can make plastics out of cassava root. And these are biodegradable, completely harmless to our environment. If you're gonna consume biodegraded plastic wouldn't you rather it be from hemp or cannabis or from cassava an organic source like those or would you rather it be from petrochemicals and that is the problem petrochemical based plastics that is the problem and we need to recover our environment from the plastic that's plaguing us um, so we can look to those answers as environmentally friendly and uh, and also I'm looking for this article here that um, yes okay it's it's that uh, all the different um, all the people who were uh, surveyed recently in the UK, I can't find the article, but they were all found to have plastics and uh, in their um, in their feces. So um, I wish I could find them. I thought I had that in my notes, but um, hmm, I wish I could uh, find it on a quick notice, but that was just in the news. <laughs> Yes, here we go. Wow. Okay, this is just uh, put out. 100% of people in pilot study had microplastic in their stools. This was just uh, published today at bigthink.com. The study was small. Eight people from eight different countries, but the findings have alarmed scientists. So, yeah, uh, I'm looking. I would like to see a bigger study, but... Um, there's that. I'm not going to go through the whole article until I've had a chance to read it. That wasn't the article that I had read earlier, so we'll just move on. But before we do, if you would like to reach us here in the last 20 minutes of the show, the phone numbers are 727-446-3000. That's 727-441-3000. That's 727-441-3000. Or 866-826-1340, toll-free, 866-TAN-1340. You're listening to Liberation Station Radio Show. I'm Chris Steiner. And we're moving on to 
this article from October 5th entitled a Florida Gulf Coast University research team received a 5.9 million grant project funded by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences to look into algae toxin with serious human impacts. And um, that's a big article, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just a quick excerpt from it. Here's a quote I'm going to read. Other segments of the research study focus on both different locations and different information about the SIGWA toxin, C-I-G-U-A toxin, that causes the human illness from fish to infect it the human illness from fish infected with the toxin. While the toxin isn't dangerous to the reef fish that ingest it by eating or herbivorous fish that eat the algae, it is dangerous to humans. Ciguatera fish poisoning causes dozens of symptoms in people from nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and tingling sensations to more severe problems like feeling hot and cold opposite of themselves. And so the article basically otherwise just states that they are looking further into this. That's uh, the Florida Gulf Coast University research team. If you want to do a web search on that and keep updated on more that uh, they're doing, including this next article that is entitled Under Our Toxic Sea, Aboard the Hogarth, Florida Gulf Coast University's maritime marine biologists study the de devastating consequences of red tide by Roger Williams, Naples, Florida Weekly, October 11, 2018. A bear of a man stands at the stern of an 80-foot vessel powered by twin 600-horsepower Caterpillar engines, separated from the churning sea behind him only by a steel cable at his back and a short drop. He simply stares, first at his student researchers and then at the motionless mosaic of death tangled in the tress tresses of a green net at their feet, worn tubes, sponges, scallop shells, a puffer fish, and some smaller fish, but something in the pile moves. A little crab. It's alive, a student calls out, noting the obvious as Dr. Darren Rumbold, a professor of marine biology at Florida Gulf Coast University, bends to pick it out of what isn't alive which appears to be everything except a couple of little sponges. The pile of motionless organic matter has just arrived on deck from the sea floor about 10 meters below. Retrieved moments earlier with an otter trawl, the trawl had been dragging the bottom for 15 minutes, something the researchers will do at three offshore stations throughout the day. The crab can hardly move. It won't be alive for long. Quote, the living sponge, though, isn't surprising. They don't need a lot of oxygen, end quote, Mr. Rumbold says, describing a species that can sometimes cling to life when others can't. He has to project his voice over the insistent growl of the big engines throbbing below deck. On the bottom, it turns out there is little or no oxygen, a condition untenable for sea life that can't swim away or swim away far enough. This is marine science, in this case aboard the W.T. Hogarth, a $6 million research vessel based at the University of South Florida's FIO, 
the Florida Institute of Oceanography and built recently for use by a consortium of state universities, including Florida Gulf Coast University, with its permanent crew of four and 12 Florida Gulf Coast University student researchers on a late September day, the Hogarth is op operating out to 17 miles west of the beaches and barrier islands of Lee and Collier counties in water ranging from about 8 to 15 meters in depth. Mr. Rumbles with Dr. Puspa Adhikari, an assistant professor of marine sciences, and a Collier County environmental specialist, Chris Leanhard, Leanhart, who studied with Mr. Rumbold earlier in the decade and holds both undergraduate and master's degrees in marine sciences from FGCU, are collecting seafloor muck in water samples with the students. The Collier County Environmental Laboratory, one of the few certified for field sampling, will help university researchers understand what they've gathered. They're also measuring oxygen levels and other data. The samples are taken from the bottom and the surface. They include some organisms visible only through the shipboard microscopes below deck. Among these, unfortunately, is Carinia brevis, as I mentioned earlier in the earlier stories. The single-celled planktonic, meaning it's plankton, creature resembling a four-chambered heart with a squiggle of a tail. The organism that creates the now infamous harmful algal bloom known as red tide by consuming both organic and inorganic matter, absorbing nutrients from a variety of sources. The photoplankton multiplies rapidly. It uses the oxygen in water, reducing it to levels many sea creatures cannot survive. In the last 12 months, the biggest red tide bloom is in memory has poisoned sea life along the southwest coast for more than 100 miles and for many miles offshore. It's been turning up on the east coast as well. Of course, now it is in Pinellas County, I must interject, and reaching the mouth of Tampa Bay. Continuing the story, the subject is controversial with some pointing fingers at corporate agriculture, some at septic and waste water treatment systems, or other upriver pollutants, and some simply at nature, as if humans can do little about the problem. A New York Times opinion piece appeared on September 29th under the byline of the celebrated outdoor writer and best-selling novelist Randy Wayne White. Mr. White has spent years living on Pine Island overlooking one of the most devastated marine regions in Florida. The piece was alternate, alternately embraced or criticized by Floridians. Quote, this summer's disaster, dot, 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 was according to Brian LaPointe, a research professor at the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute, a rare collision between disparate blooms that were inaccurately portrayed as one, a marine-borne red tide and a freshwater infestation of blue-green algae, end quote, Mr. White wrote. Quote, the degree to which it is sustained or accelerated by nutrients, natural or man-made, is the subject of rancorous debate. In Florida, however, the cause of the blue-green algae, a freshwater disaster in both the Caloosahatchee and St. Lucie rivers, has been directly linked to septic tanks, according to Harbor Branch Institute. I must interject here that that obviously is not the case. 
And that's one of the reasons I'm focusing so much on this issue is because in so many news reports I hear, they just want to blame not corporations like U.S. Sugar, not Mosaic Phosphate Mining Company, but they're trying to blame the average folks in their septic tanks without mentioning or barely even mentioning U.S. Sugar, Mosaic Phosphate Mining Company. To continue the article, in the eyes of Mr. Rumbold, John Cassani, the Calusa waterkeeper, and other researchers, nutrient-rich lake water primarily fuels the blue-green algae, which may indirectly affect red tide. Quote, agriculture is the biggest source of nutrient runoff by far. Nutrient loading to the Calusahatchee estuary is dominated by the upstream basin of mostly ag, agriculture, and lake discharges, end quote, Mr. Kasani explained. Aboard the Hogarth, however, there is no debate. The professors and their student researchers have come to assess the red tide's parameters and its consequences. They're also, they, they'll also consider what many others have not, says Mr. Rumble. Quote, what the bacterial breakdown of all the biomass could do to the chemistry and benthic life of the seafloor, end quote. Everyone in the state, it seems, from politicians to university professors to professional cooks and hoteliers, wants to know what nobody has figured out in three or four decades of increasingly determined research, specifically what fuels red tide, where those various nutrients come from, and what we must do to reduce its potency in large degree. Although it likely existed as a natural occurrence, even when the Spanish arrived in the New World at Charlotte Harbor more than 500 years ago, quote, I doubt anyone will disagree that while reducing nutrients will not prevent the next outbreak, it will reduce the duration of intense or intensity of the bloom, end quote, explains Mr. Rumbold. But which nutrients and from what sources? Science could give us those answers. The marine biologist will use water and bottom samples to trace the nutrients and, identi and identify any bacteria present using DNA. They'll determine the source of nutrients into these waters from groundwater seepage, from the surface water or Caloosahatchee River, from ocean sources, and they'll seek to define the parameters of this massive bloom. Quote, we know red tide is fueled by nutrients, so we want to know where they're coming from, end quote. Mr. Antikari explains simply. To that end, he's collecting many gallons of seawater at different stations, running it into large plastic containers, and then filtering the water into smaller sample containers in a search for radium at different depths. Quote, the amount of radium we can measure will tell the source of the water. Is it coming from groundwater sources? End quote, he says. Quote, remember wastewater and agricultural runoff can seep through groundwater sources and come back in the ocean. So they are coming from these submarine sources or the surface water or from the ocean side. End quote. That's a question mark there. Depending on 
what he discovers this day, he may plunge into much more intensive research focused on the radium counts and water sources. While he works off the port side, Mr. Rumble and several students are using a long slender cylinder known as a Niskin bottle off the starboard side to collect water samples along with a blocky heavyweight instrument the size of a bread box, a shipwreck to collect sediment from the bottom. And I'm just going to cut the article off there. That's just going into how they are conducting their studies. Um, and we'll just continue moving on to the next article in the last eight minutes. If you'd like to call, though, you're welcome to contribute on this or anything or even nothing that I've talked about so far in the show. You can reach us here at 87, pardon me, toll free 866. 826-1340, that's 866-826-1340, or locally, 727-441-3000, that's 727-441-3000. And um, I'm going to back up uh, just a little bit because it just I was just reminded that because I covered that uh, cancer is really uh, prevented or those who eat an organic diet, they can not only prevent cancer, but those who are diagnosed with cancer can have a much higher survival rate, according to the new study published yesterday from the Journal of the American, American Medical Association. They do get it right sometimes. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Sherry Rogers, MD, uh, has often pointed out points where they do not. But um, I needed to uh, point out something to empower you. If you can't eat organic, if you're not uh, able to afford it, well, grow your own for one thing. That way you have the most fresh food, the most energy rich food. You can look at your food once it's fresh, freshly picked under Curlian photography and show that the energy coming off the aura the actual aura coming off of the food, once you freshly pick it, it'll show a beautiful, bright aura. But as time progresses, then the energy, the aura dies down. So it's best to have freshly picked foods with rare exceptions like bananas or say mangoes or quite a few other produce uh, that can ripen after you pick it. So if you have to pick it to prevent it from being destroyed during a freeze or save it from uh, the vermin, like the squirrels, you know, if you don't want them getting your pineapple, well, then you can pick it and let it ripen later. So there are a few exceptions. You can also go to the Environmental Working Group at ewg.org, Environmental Working Group's website, lists the Clean 15, which is a list of produce that is sprayed the least with pesticides, fungicides, and herbicides. Although there are now more than 15 items of produce on that list. And they also have the Dirty Dozen, those pro that produce that has the most pesticide, herbicide, fungicide spray. And uh, now they do have a list of greater than a dozen on that list. So you can uh, find that still uh, under the famous titles Clean 15 and Dirty Dozen. Another great option is soaking your food in freshly ionized alkaline water. If you have a water ionizer, we talked about that in the last show with Robert Scott Bell. 
And uh, you can check out his site at robertswater.com to get uh, an echo water ionizer. But what you do, and I'm, I'm saying this, I, I don't think Robert promotes this, uh, the selling point, but I know that if you do use a water ionizer to produce freshly ionized alkaline water, you want it freshly ionized because it loses its properties, its uh, various different properties soon after ionizing. And if you take freshly ionized alkaline water, you soak your food in it, then it'll actually electrostatically, kind of like electromagnetically, but electrostatically draw out toxins and pathogens, which are harmful germs, from deep within the food. It's called the van der Waals forces. If you want to look that up, V-A-N-D-E-R-W-A-A-L-S. That's van der Waals forces. Three separate words, van der Waals forces, meaning the electrical charge of the water actually adsorbs, not absorbs, but adsorb. That's A, D as in D, uh, D as in door, S-O-R-B. It draws out or adsorbs electrostatically the positively charged toxins and pathogens. And most toxins and pathogens are positively charged. So you'll find that your food tastes a lot better, lasts a lot longer. A lot of the produce will actually start growing again in the refrigerator. And, uh, you know, you can take the same food and uh, take uh, half of an apple, whether it's organic or not, soak it in freshly ionized alkaline water. The higher pH, the better, the faster it will actually electrostatically draw out from deep within the plant, the produce, the uh, positively charged toxins and pathogens. And, um, you know, say you could take 11.5 pH water, it'll take about 10 minutes. And then uh, after that 10 minutes, you'll notice the food, as I say, tastes a lot better, lasts a lot longer, and might start growing again in your refrigerator. You can spray plants, they'll grow a lot better. And that actually is an argument against using pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides. The acidic ionized water you can use to destroy fungus on plants and people as well without any harm to animal or plant tissue so if you want to avoid the use of fungicides you can use acidic ionized water well that's it for this edition of the liberation station i'm your host chris steiner the website is the liberationstation.com that's t-h-e liberationstation.com all take great care